obviously glad to uh, see one another, which is a good thing. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 9, and we want to look at verses 1 through 8, Christ's power to forgive sins is what I've entitled the message here this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word now. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly, uh, minister to our hearts, and bring uh, home to us those things that you would have for us to see clearly and apply to our lives this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in Matthew. The great theme in Matthew is Christ the King. Now, you realize Matthew is writing to a Jewish uh, perspective, largely. And uh, the Jews were looking forward to a Messiah to come who would be their king. And really, we could kind of boil down the, uh, the history, uh, the Messianic history uh, to this point, like this. The king is coming. First point. Second point. The king has come, but was rejected. Third point, the king is coming again. There you go. There's kind of an overview of the king theme. Well, as we're working through uh, Matthew, we are in chapters uh, 8 through 10, uh, the power of the king, really better perhaps the authority of the king, proving his prophetical right to the throne by fulfilling prophecy. Now, a key emphasis in Christ's ministry, as seen in Matthew 8 and 9, is the issue of lordship authority. We see it in chapter 8 when the centurion recognized Christ's authority to just say the word and heal his servant from a distance. We see it there in chapter 8 in Christ having direct authority over the winds and waves of the sea. Christ's miracles over nature were unique. The apostles were allowed by God to do certain sign miracles in relationship to sickness and demons. But Christ alone did miracles over nature. I'm talking in relationship to the apostles and prophets. Yes, in the Old Testament, a few prophets like Moses and Elijah on occasion were used in reference to miracles over nature. But in each case, they really did it secondhand in... Dependence upon God. In contrast, Jesus did it more firsthand, in first person, as if he himself was doing it directly. And that is unique. And for this reason, the disciples marveled, as we saw back in chapter 8, verse 27, when they said, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? That's unprecedented. Nobody has that kind of direct authority. Now, Elijah prayed, it didn't rain. Elijah prayed and it did rain. But Jesus just directly, outright commanded the winds, the storm to be still, and it happened. Making him unique. Jesus, as the Messiah, was unique in his unprecedented miracle-working power. And Jesus' miracles are called signs, signs, consistently throughout the book of John. There were sign miracles, Uh, these were sign miracles pointing to the reality of who he was as seen in the divine human Messiah. So note here, John 20, we know these verses pretty well, many of us do, memorize them perhaps. Truly, Jesus did many other signs. This is the word for miracles. Truly many other signs, miracles, sign miracles. In the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe. What are these signs pointing to? Uh, They're written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the believing you may have life in His name. Now, if everyone was doing the same signs that Jesus was doing, it'd be a lot of confusion, right? Who is the Christ? Uh, Well, Jesus says He's the Christ, and He's doing sign miracles. Well, these other people, they're doing sign miracles. Uh, Maybe they're the Christ. Jesus did unique miracles, and He certainly did them on a scale that no one else ever did. Well, as we continue on in Matthew chapter 9, the authority theme continues. Today in our study, we see Christ's unique authority to directly forgive sins proven by his ability to heal physically. 
And again, this combination is completely unique to Christ's ministry. Now, the parallel passages to our study in Matthew 9, 1 through 8 are found in Mark 2, 3 through 12, and also Luke 5, 18 through 26, just as an FYI matter. But let's get into it. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 1. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Now, in thematic context, and I emphasize this because Matthew writes kind of thematically, not always so chronologically, but in thematic context, Jesus crossed over from Capernaum to the region of Gadara, where he had cast thousands of demons out of two demon-possessed men. Now, the demons immediately then entered into a herd of pigs, which in mass promptly committed suicide by running violently over a steep precipice into the sea. Then the people from that city, in that area, they came out and they begged Jesus to leave their region. And guess what? Guess what? He left. He left. And that's what we have here in Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. When Jesus is not welcome somewhere, he leaves. He does not force his way in. He wants to be wanted. He invites people to receive him, to come to him. But he doesn't force it. I think about uh, Hebrews 10.26, which says, For if we sin willfully, willful rejection, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's no other provision. If you're going to reject Jesus Christ as the, the provided sacrifice for sins, if you willfully sin against and reject the truth, there's nothing else. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, Peter said. He's absolutely right. There, there, is, no, no other, there is no other hope. There's no hope for those who sin willfully in rejecting the plain truth that is made obvious to them. A saving faith response welcomes the truth and desires to receive Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it. This is a saving faith response. You welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. It works. But only in the lives of those who believe. Somebody says, well, I tried that. It didn't work. Well, you didn't really believe because if you really believe, it would work. It effectively works in you who believe. Now, in contrast, when the truth of Christ is rejected, Christ goes away. Sometimes the very worst thing that can happen is that God simply allows people to have their own rebel way. In Romans chapter 1, three times it is stated that God gives people over. He gives them over to depraved minds, to do their own devices, in which the wrath of God is on display. So being rejected by the Gadarenes, Christ then crossed over the Sea of Galilee once again and came to his own city of Capernaum. So here we are. He was over here in Capernaum. He crossed over here, came down to Gadara. And he cast these thousands of demons out of these two guys who were demon-possessed. they went into the pigs, and the people came out and said, Please, please, get out of here. We don't want you here. So, okay. Next verse, he gets back, crosses again, comes back to Capernaum. That's where we are in our study this morning. Now, just as a footnote here, early in his ministry, Christ returned to his hometown of Nazareth. And when he got there, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and he opened up to the Messianic text of Isaiah chapter 61. And closing the book, he declared, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. But instead of receiving him as the promised Messiah that he was just reading about, the hometown people of Nazareth decided to kill him in seeking to throw him over a hill. But miraculously, Jesus passed through the midst of them and went on his way, as seen in Luke chapter 4. Matthew 4, 17 says, quote, And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum. Having been rejected at Nazareth, Jesus then came, or then Jesus made Capernaum his own city, which is to say his ministry headquarters. Again, we see Jesus was rejected in Nazareth, 
And when he was, he simply moved on to another town, namely Capernaum, and made it his own city. Jesus only stays where he's welcome. You don't want Jesus? Okay. Okay. You don't have to have him. In fact, you'll be separated from him for all eternity. Well, you know what he's going to say on Judgment Day? Uh, to many, he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. You didn't want me in life. You won't have me in eternity. In arriving back at Capernaum, here's what transpired. Verse 2. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Now, many think this scene very possibly took place at Peter's house. We believe he had a house here in Capernaum. And that was probably one reason Jesus made this uh, his ministry headquarters. Mark adds these details. Mark chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Same story. Mark's adding a few other details that Matthew left out. Luke, same thing. Uh, Mark chapter 2. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. So because of the density of the crowd, these four friends proceeded to go to the upper level of the house, make an opening in the roof, and then lower this paralyzed man down in front of Jesus. Now it says here, When Jesus saw their faith, and it is undoubtedly speaking not only of the four who brought him, but also of the paralytic who was brought. And the reason I say that is because sin is forgiven only on the basis of faith. You say, well, the other, others perhaps had faith, but not the paralytic. Uh, because if he had faith, he, would, he wouldn't have had to come. He'd just been walking already. No, no, that's, that's wrong theology. Sin is forgiven only on the basis of faith. So this would indicate that certainly the paralytic also had faith. Faith and forgiveness are consistently connected in the scriptures. The basis of how we receive God's forgiveness in salvation is on the basis of faith. And faith always has an object. And in the case of the gospel message, the object of our faith is always Jesus Christ. Who he is and what he has done for us. In dying for all of our sins on the cross and then rising again the third day. After we are believers, you know what? We're always believers. A true believer forever remains a believer. You know, and say, well, I used to believe, but I don't believe now. Well, then you never did truly believe. After we are believers, if we fall into sin, we remain believers. Now, we're erring children, but we're still children. We don't have to come to faith all over again. And we still believe, even as errant children. Rather, what we then need to do is get right in our walk through confession, as seen in 1 John 1.9. Faith tied to forgiveness of all our sins relates to salvation. Salvation. You don't say, well, if I just come to faith again, I'll now be forgiven. I am a child of God, but I I messed up and I got to come to faith again in order to be. No, 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 no. You are still a believer. You just need to get right with the God you believe in. Faith tied to forgiveness of all of our sins relates to salvation. And that's what's in view here. Pretty strong testimony. Acts 10, 43. To him, some, no, no, no. To him, all the prophets bear witness. It's talking about Jesus in context here. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the uniform testimony of scripture. This is how you receive forgiveness through faith. Now, it was on the basis of faith that Jesus pronounced this man forgiven of sins. Now, some have tried to make the case that this man's physical ailment 
was a result of some specific sin in his life. And for that reason, he was a paralytic, you know, God just zapped him. Couldn't, you know, he's down on his mat, couldn't, couldn't move, couldn't walk paralyzed because he had some sin in his life. Just one problem with that. The text doesn't say that. Now, it is true that sometimes physical maladies can be because of specific sin in the life of a believer. There is this issue of discipline. We see it in different places in the New Testament. But as seen in John chapter 9 with the man born blind, sometimes physical ailments are not because of any personal sin, but simply because we live in a fallen world. We don't always know the reason why people are sick or have infirmities. You're having a beef with somebody, all of a sudden they get sick, sick, sick. Watch it. You're probably going to get pneumonia next week. Uh, Watch out. In this fallen world, we have two major related sin problems, consequences. The entire human race is breaking down physically because of the effects of sin traced back to Adam. It is a general condition that affects the whole of humanity. Everybody gets sick, except for those few wild-eyed charismatics that are on television. I mean, they are accepted, of course. Not. It affects the whole of humanity. Secondly, we all come with a spiritual problem. There's physical consequences, but spiritual consequences, in which because of our sin... We are cut off from the life of God and therefore in need of forgiveness. This is our greatest need. And this is what is in view here in Matthew chapter 9. This is forgiveness related to salvation based on faith. Jesus addressed the man's spiritual need first and foremost. Because this is the greatest need that we have. This need of forgiveness. Now when Jesus said... Son, be of good cheer. The words good cheer could be translated, take courage or take heart. This was meant to encourage and strengthen him spiritually. I mean, if you are a Jew, think about this. What must uh, the theology said about a guy who's a paralytic lying on his mat all the time? You talk about a, a sinful person. You must be really bad. That was kind of the prevailing theology. Remember in John 9, uh, who sinned, this man or his parents? Somebody, somebody, sin is responsible for this. Imagine living with that theology your whole life in a very religious Jewish context. I'm sure he felt like, man, uh, God will never accept me. I'm probably not saved. Look at me, I'm lying on my mat all the day. Jesus says, uh, take courage. Take courage, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Now, properly understood, nothing is more important than being forgiven of sin. Nothing is more encouraging and strengthening than knowing that all your sins have been forgiven. No matter what else happens, this is ultimately what matters in the end. I remember when I was first forgiven as a new Christian. And I'd lived a pretty wild life. I mean, I was living in the fast lane as a young man. But when, when I really came to Christ and just to know... All is forgiven. How glorious it was to go to sleep at night. I was always, you know, in my drunken state, going to sleep at night, wondering, man, what's going to happen to me? Because I was raised by a godly mother who really instilled in me, my godly parents did, as far as a fear of God. Jesus here, first and foremost, for this man dealt with the ultimate and most important thing. On the basis of his faith, Jesus forgave him of all of his sins. Now, that's great. Everything else is totally secondary. We want to make the physical like that's the paramount thing. Jesus made the most important thing the spiritual issue. Now, someone has said that forgiven is the most special word in the English language. Certainly one of them. The Greek word translated forgive means to send away. Literally. In common vernacular, it means to let it go. To let it go. God is omniscient, knowing all things past, present, future, real, and potential. 
So when the Bible says in forgiveness, God will remember our sins no more, as we have in Hebrews chapter 10. The sense is that he chooses not to remember them in the sense that in his divine accounting, he no longer reckons them to our account. How good, how wonderful is this? Okay, well, let's look at Pastor Dwight's records. Bring out the sin record. Well, it's not there. Uh, those sins are no longer on the record. How about that? Now, that's, that's something to be of good cheer about. God has let it go. Never to be held us again, uh, against us again. The penal issue of sin has been forever taken care of in Christ. We love these verses, don't we? Yeah, we do as believers. Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Colossians 2, 13, 14, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out. And just like that whiteboard, I, was, I wiped everything out on the whiteboard after I was done this morning. Just wiped it out. Having wiped out the, the handwriting of requirements. And imagine this. Well, you sinned here, you hear, I'm keeping track here. All of these things handwritten down. Sin, 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 sin. Boy, how long would our record be? Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. You failed here, you failed there. Which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's where it is. Having forgiven you all trespasses, nailed the record that was against us to the cross. It's all taken care of. Well, this is exciting. Except if you're a scribe sitting in this context. Verse 3 and at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. Note, it didn't take them long to reach a conclusion, right? At once, you have to realize if you study the context of the scribes, that they were nitpickers. And they came with a, they're trying to find some dirt on Jesus. They found it! Wow! This man blasphemes! He said the wrong thing. We got him now! When Jesus declared the paralytic sin forgiven, the scribes immediately drew some theological conclusions. Namely, this was blasphemy. Now clearly, they did not understand this as merely expressing forgiveness in the sense of personal forgiveness, in which one person forgives another of some wrongdoing. They're not thinking on that level. Rather, they understood this as Jesus making a blanket statement, forgiving this man of all his sins, plural, such as God forgives a believer in salvation. This was a blanket release from all his sins. Only God can do this. This is God's territory. This is his prerogative, which is why they considered this to be blasphemy. You understand, blasphemy denotes... It's really irreverent speech, offensive to God. In the Old Testament, the penalty for blasphemy was death, the death penalty. Leviticus chapter 24, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall surely stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. By the way, it is amazing what people do with the name of God out here. I'm waiting for them to use some other name. You know, like when they hit their finger. Oh, Buddha! They don't say that, do they? How come? I don't know why Buddha is not brought into the equation more. I never hear Buddha. I hear Jesus. Jesus Christ. Why is that? i just just wondering. Just, just a side note. This was a deadly serious charge. And we don't have to wonder why they consider this to be blasphemy. Because the cross reference in Mark 2 makes the issue very clear. Mark 2, 6 and 7. 
Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. They were making some serious theological conclusions. And they were thinking this. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? This is God's... And they knew it. Now you understand, the scribes were the theological experts of the day. They, they They had doctorates in theology. They knew the Bible better than anyone. They copied and interpreted the scriptures. They were scholars who viewed themselves as the guardians of the Jewish faith. They knew the Old Testament scriptures very well. And they knew that those scriptures taught that people are ultimately accountable to God alone. And that ultimately he alone is the one who forgives sins. And give them some credit. In this premise they were right. They were sound in their theology. Yeah, it's all over the Old Testament. Isaiah 43, 25, I even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Jeremiah 31, 34, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So these scribes had it right. They had it right. Only God can, in the ultimate sense, forgive sins. This makes it very clear that they understood Jesus was presuming to act as God in declaring this paralytic's sins forgiven. You see, the problem is that they did not recognize Jesus as God come in the flesh. They did not recognize him as Emmanuel, which means God with us. Thus, when Jesus made this statement, Declaring sins forgiven, they, they considered to, it to be sacrilegious blasphemy. In their minds, Jesus was a mere man acting like he was God. He was claiming to do what only God can ultimately do. And that would be blasphemy. Except for one thing. Jesus is indeed God. And as God, he does have the authority to forgive sins. Indeed, this is God's prerogative. But what they fail to see is that Jesus, as the divine human Messiah, was indeed God doing what only God can do. Verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Once again, we see the emphasis really, in a roundabout way, on the deity of Christ. You see, only God knows the thoughts and motives of what is going on in the heart of other people, ultimately. Ultimately, we don't even know fully even our own hearts. Again, this is God's territory. Verse 12, Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know it? Well, the Lord. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. What's Jesus doing in this situation? Even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. 1 Corinthians 2.11 For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of that man? You know, have you ever had this experience where somebody is talking to you? And and I've had this experience where they're talking to me and I'm thinking, they have no idea what I'm thinking right now. (laughs) Which is generally a good thing. Anyway. uh, But God knows. God knows what we're thinking. You don't fool him. You can't sit there and say, well, I prayed to God. If he only knew what I'm thinking, he knows what you're thinking right now. In John chapter 2, it says, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. Well, how well did he know everybody? Had no need that anyone should testify of men, for he knew what was in man. He knows what's going on inside us. Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He knows everything. Well, Jesus, as the divine human Messiah, knew exactly what they were thinking. And he knew their thoughts were evil. When it says Christ called them out for thinking evil in their hearts, the word evil means worthless, bad, malignant, or wicked. 
I mean, this wasn't like he was saying, you know, you're kind of entering into a territory that is kind of questionable. He called it like it was. Evil. They weren't simply ignorant or confused. Christ accused them of evil reasoning for which they were accountable. And he's acting like they're accountable to him, which, of course, they ultimately are. It is evil to accuse Jesus of sin. Yea, the sin of blasphemy. It was evil to reject all the sign miracle evidence that Jesus had been doing, pointing to the fact that he is Messiah God. By the way, it is very clear in the Old Testament that the coming Messiah would be both God and man in one person. I mean, we could go to many places. But Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. God promised through David's line that there would be this, this kingly line, ultimately with the king coming through the line of David. And who's he going to be? Verse 6 continues. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name. This is who he is. By which he will be called the Lord. This is in the Hebrew, Yahweh. The Lord, our righteousness. That's his name. That's who he is. Note the overtones here in, in the text in Matthew that point to Jesus being God. Note these things here. Christ's deity on display. He saw their faith. Now, I can see the fruit of faith in a person's life, right? But I can't see a person's faith. You know why? I can't see a person's heart. That's why when I have the privilege to share the gospel with somebody and they make a profession, I say, if you believe in your heart, I, I can't see their faith. You can't say, well, you're not quite there yet. I'm, I'm, it hasn't shown up on my little meter here, my faith meter. It's not there. No. But Jesus saw their faith, and he said, your sins are forgiven, and it says, knowing their thoughts. All these are indicative of the truth that Jesus Christ is God. And so he puts forth this little uh, mental challenge to them. And he says, verse 5, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? That's a great question, by the way. It's, just, it's a profound question, isn't it? It's a great question. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or arise and walk? Well, as far as just saying the words, one can say them with equal ease, right? Yeah, you say anything. But in terms of outward evidence demanded, it's much easier to say, your sins are forgiven, than to say, get up and walk. You see, anyone could pronounce your sins are forgiven, but how would anyone ever really know? Right? There's no outward proof demanded. It can't be tested. It's unobservable and unprovable. That's easy. That's easy. Any false teacher can do that. Your sins are forgiven. How do I know that for sure? Well, you don't. But your sins are forgiven. Anyone could say that without confirming evidence. Mere talk is so easy to do. To make claims that are unable to be substantiated is easy. That's easy. And, and you can never really nail them down. It's, it's in the abstract out here. Nobody can prove it's not true. In reality, the, the greater thing is actually the forgiveness of sins. But again, it's in the abstract and therefore easy to say with no verification possible in and of itself. Any clergy-type person dressed up in religious garb might sprinkle a little holy water and intone, your sins are forgiven. That's easy. That's easy. Merely saying you are forgiven provides no concrete proof of anything. On the other hand, on the other hand, to say arise and walk demands an outward immediate response. If the person can't do it, it would show immediately that this person is a fraud spouting words. So saying arise and walk is much harder in the sense that it demands outward evidence. 
as proof that the person saying it actually has the power and the authority to make it happen. So Jesus follows up. Verse 6, But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Now, the way Jesus stated this should have gotten their attention. You see, everything Jesus says is important, and it has significance. And he calls himself here the Son of Man, which was clearly a messianic designation going back to the Old Testament book of Daniel. This is the key reference uh, messianically related to the Son of Man in the Old Testament. Where Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the Son of Man. And, the, and what's interesting, the Jews recognize this as a messianic designation. So when Jesus uses this phrase, it should have been, oh wow, he's claiming to be the Messiah. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days. They brought him near him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one, his kingdom, the one which will not be destroyed. So this son of man designation was, was clearly talking about no regular man. He is called Son of Man, but with God-like qualities in that he comes with the clouds of heaven. He reigns supreme over all forever. He has eternal glory and an eternal kingdom, and thus he lives forever in this capacity. Who other, what regular man can you say that about? No other regular man. Clearly, Jesus was claiming to be this unique Messiah figure in calling himself the Son of Man. Which, by the way, was his favorite designation, found some 78 times in the Gospels. And the proof provided was not in abstract terms, but rather comes in concrete, objective terms that would immediately be demonstrated. That they might know that he has the divine authority to forgive sins, he commanded the paralytic to take up his bed and go to his house. Again, in view is lordship authority indicative of being Lord God. The observable physical miracle of healing provided proof of the unobservable spiritual miracle of forgiveness. A key reason for this miracle was to show that Christ indeed had lordship authority to forgive all sins. That's an amazing thing. And there's a bigger picture. You need to understand this. This all fits with a, you ready for this? Kingdom narrative. Christ was the promised king doing kingdom miracles. Thus providing kingdom proof that he was indeed the prophesied Messiah king. Stanley Toussaint says, this is one of the most significant signs Jesus performs relative to the kingdom program. It shows that he is capable of forgiving sins on earth, which is something the Messiah must be able to do. You see, the Jews of Jesus' day commonly drew a link between sin and sickness. They looked forward to the coming Messiah who would remove both sin and sickness as he brings in the kingdom. The coming of the kingdom brings forth both deliverance from sin as well as sickness. I mean, once we get into the kingdom, you're not going to say, well, where are the hospitals? Uh, sorry, folks, you're in the wrong dispensation. This connection is emphasized in the Old Testament scriptures, and it is the Messiah that brings it about. Note just a couple of references. Jeremiah 50, verse 20, in relationship to kingdom forgiveness. In those days, in that time, says the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought, but there shall be none. And the sins of Judah, but they shall not be found. For I will pardon those whom I preserve. That remnant that comes through the great tribulation is going to be a pardoned remnant. When they go, all Israel will be saved, as Paul says in Romans. 
But then the kingdom healing context. Isaiah 35 is another kingdom context. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For the water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So we see that connection related to kingdom forgiveness and kingdom healing. This text, also a, a kingdom context, says, And the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. That combination is what we see being brought to bear in the ministry of Jesus Christ. How does this happen? Well, it doesn't happen apart from the divine human Messiah who brings it about when he comes to usher in the kingdom. Just an overview of where we are. You know, the king was rejected. And so, you know, they called for his crucifixion. He was crucified. And uh, so then, now God's doing a brand new thing. Emphasis on Jews in the Old Testament, Israel. But they've been set aside temporarily. We are in the church age. God's doing a brand new thing, building a brand new family called the church. Consisting of all believers, Jew or Gentile, equal spiritual footing now in Jesus Christ. That's, wh- that's what's happening in the church age. God's building his church family. One of these days, perhaps today, you know, when I open up my curtains in the morning, as I do almost every morning, I, I got three bay windows, and each one, I'll come, and I'll open it up, I'll look into the sky, and I'll say, perhaps today, perhaps today, perhaps, and I look into the, cl- and, you know, perhaps today. One of these days, it's going to happen. He's going to take the church out of the world, and then he's going to resume his program with Israel. He's going to discipline them, and, and they're going to come to repentance at the end of the tribulation. Then we, the bride of Christ, return with him to reign at his second coming. This is the context we're talking about. We're in the millennial kingdom that merges into the eternal state. But that's the kingdom. Then these things will have a complete fulfillment. The point being emphasized is that the kingdom will be a time when the Son of Man brings about cleansing from sin in combination with physical healing for all those who put their faith in him. That's the point. What we have in Jesus' earthly ministry is a little snapshot of this coming kingdom reality. Again, he was the king, presenting his kingdom credentials to Israel on the condition of repentance. He was legitimately offering it, but they did not receive him. They would not repent. And so the kingdom has been put on hold. The problem was that Israel did not come to repentance, and so the kingdom offer was withdrawn at that time and postponed. Now, it's still coming, but it's a future reality that awaits Israel repentance. So, here's what we have. Christ right now is building His church. When that is completed, tribulation, Israel repents, second coming, kingdom reign. That's the sequence. Well, in doing this miracle, Christ showed that He is indeed the prophesied Messianic Son of Man. Uh, who is able to forgive sins on earth and bring about kingdom conditions described in the Old Testament. Now, here's how the logic should go. If followed consistently, this is how it would look. When Jesus healed the man born blind in John 9, this is how he reasoned with those Jewish religious leaders. Remember what he said to them? The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing. A little bit of sarcasm in this guy, too. you got to like him. Uh, why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know from where he's from. I mean, you guys are the experts. Uh, here I am, this guy been born blind that you're putting all these curses on all my whole life. Uh, here's a marvelous thing that you guys are so dense, you just don't get this basic point. I add a lot there. He didn't say all that, but <laughs> in a sense, he's kind of what he's saying here. Uh, why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know from where he's from. Yet he has opened my eyes. A man born blind, unheard of, unparalleled. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. So proper reasoning goes like this. If Jesus was indeed a blasphemer in pronouncing forgiveness, then he would not be able to perform a wholesome physical miracle that is clearly of God. But since he did 
the physical miracle, the spiritual reality of forgiving sins must also be true. That is consistent spiritual thinking. But alas, the religious leaders in Israel largely refused to be consistent with the logic of the truth. No wonder Jesus called them out as having evil thoughts in their hearts. Uh, A footnote here, just an FYI footnote here. This is from Moody Bible Commentary. Miracles in the Gospels and Acts frequently occur to substantiate those whom God used to initiate a new movement and to validate new revelation. And I think we see that in places like Hebrews chapter 2. How should we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. That is the apostles. God bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles, etc. So the ministry of Christ and by extension his apostles, who were his unique authoritative representatives, had their ministries validated by special signs and wonders. But Christ's ministry was most unique, as I've already emphasized, as he did things such as directly forgiving sins, which no one else ever did. He was unique, for indeed he was the God-man who is the Messiah. So what do you suppose happened here? Well, we read on, verse 7, and he arose and departed to his house. You know, that's the thing about the Lord. When he commands something, it happens. Uh, You know... (laughs) There was no, uh, you you think I should do this? Uh, No. He got up and he went home. Now this must have completely stymied Christ's critics. For we hear no more from them or about them. None of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the, the similar gospels, mention any response from the scribes. The fact that he instantly healed this paralyzed man showed that indeed He did have authority to forgive sins. It was undeniable. This has been termed in-your-face testimony. Not only was the paralytic physically healed in this miracle, he also had assurance that he was forgiven. Which is greater, by the way, in light of eternity? Physical healing or assurance that you've been healed? Or assurance that you've been forgiven? He was physically healed, assurance that he was forgiven, and the charge of blasphemy was roundly refuted. Verse 8. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. It was impressive. Nobody could deny it. The miracle was amazing, causing the multitudes who saw it to literally be afraid and glorify God. The word marveled here in the New King James is more literally, they were afraid. This kind of supernatural power on display was awesome, but it was also terrifying. It's kind of like the disciples on the Sea of Galilee in the storm, when he quiets the storm, you know, they were, very, they were afraid. And after he quiets the storm, they were very afraid. Mark 2, 12 adds that the people said, We never saw anything like this, never before. Had they seen a pronouncement of forgiveness followed up by a supernatural miracle of physical healing of a completely disabled person. The response of the multitudes here is in complete contrast to that of the Gadarians. Who upon seeing Jesus' power over demons asked him to leave. They too were undoubtedly afraid but did not glorify God. In contrast, these folk here in Capernaum on this occasion were overwhelmed by this power, gave glory to God for it. And yet, and yet, do you catch it? They missed the point. Note it says, they glorified God who had given such power to men. They missed the point. Sadly, you see, God hasn't given the authority to forgive sins to men. They missed the point. Jesus was not merely a man, but who? The messianic son of man. They should have been consistent with the theology of the scribes, which said that only God can forgive sins. They should have been consistent with the healing miracle, which verified that indeed Christ did have power to forgive sins. And they should have been consistent with Sound spiritual logic that concludes that Jesus is not merely a man, 
but rather the God-man, which is consistent with who the Messiah would be as testified by the Old Testament prophets. William MacDonald says, From this they should have realized that they had witnessed, that what they had witnessed was not a demonstration of God giving authority to men, but of God's presence among them in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. William MacDonald. Well, let me ask you, as I wrap up here, which means now you all are stop listening. I don't know why I say that, because then you stop listening. But what is the greatest thing Jesus ever did in his pre-cross earthly ministry? If I was to ask you that, what would you say? What is the greatest thing he did in his pre-cross earthly ministry? He did some pretty amazing things, right? He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cast out demons. He calmed the storm. He fed the multitudes. But I submit to you, that the greatest thing that he did was to provide forgiveness for those who believe in him. And he proved to have the authority to forgive sins by instantly restoring the paralytic to full health. No one in the history of the world has ever done that before or after. This combination of providing forgiveness with incontrovertible supernatural proof is unparalleled. I love this from C.S. Lewis. I've quoted it often. It's a great quote. Great quotes are quoted often. C.S. Lewis, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Lewis is absolutely right. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. That's the eternal question. Who is he? Who is he to you? That's the ultimate question. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, and you will be saved. Who is he? He is Lord God. He is the promised Messiah who would be both Lord and human in one person, the God-man. We as true believers believe in him personally for who he is as our God, our Savior. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's stand and have our concluding song and then I'll close this in prayer.